0: the podcast where we discuss everything under the sun, moon, and stars related to J.R.R. Tolkien and his enormous impact. I'm your host, Larry D. Curtis, and my voice is one of many you will hear from around the globe as we delve deep into the works of the Oxford professor and their influences on so many things, including pop culture, art, academia, music, games, fandom, film, online communities, and now television, and so much more. So whether you're a studied Tolkienite or someone who has recently discovered the professor's works, I say to you, join us. Hello, and welcome to Middle Earth Musings. I'm Larry D. Curtis, and I am your host, and I am delighted to have an interview today with Sir Richard Taylor, the head of Weta Workshop, a company that he founded more than 30 years ago with his partner, Tanya Roger. The two of them, working in the humble beginnings of their back room of their flat at the time, have built that workshop into a 58,000-square-foot facility with a tight-knit creative crew that houses a comprehensive range of design and manufacture departments that primarily service, but not exclusively, the film industry. In 2010, Richard was made a knight. He was knighted at the Queen's birthday festivities that year with the knight companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit, for his service to film. And in 2012, he was named New Zealander of the Year. He has won over 30 awards, international and New Zealand awards, including five Academy Awards and four BAFTA Awards. And if you ever visit a workshop and sit in that uh, kind of meeting room they have, there they are. It's pretty amazing to see them, uh, and not in a pretentious way, but they sure make an impact. I first met Richard at a party in eh, 2001, mi- hours, maybe minutes after the – Fellowship of the Ring won some Academy Awards, and he and Pete Jackson and In McKellen and some other actors showed up at this fan-sponsored party and hung out and passed Academy Awards around and uh, were pretty chill, pretty amazing. That's to, to show how unpretentious Richard is. I have to say he's been very kind to me over the years, including agreeing to do this podcast episode when there was no podcast to show, just with an explanation— Um, Weta did the props, costumes, prosthetics, miniatures, and weaponry for Peter Jackson's epic Lord of the Rings films, but he's worked on many, many, many films since that company has, uh, definitely including King Kong. More recently, you probably saw their work in Thor Love and Thunder, a little film, a little independent film that I have a little soft spot for called Pearl, and it's uh, X, another related film, upcoming soon, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, features Weta Workshop, and then these little, this little film called Avatar, The Way of the Water. James Cameron, of course, makes films in New Zealand. And you've probably seen Richards and Weta's work in The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, season one. So we didn't talk about that. And uh, we had enough to talk about Richard and Tolkien and Middle-earth. Without further ado, Sir Richard Taylor. Hello, Richard Taylor. This is Larry, the host of the new podcast called Middle-earth Musings. We are delighted to have you here from New Zealand to Salt Lake City.
1: G'day, Larry. It's a real pleasure to be here with you and talking to everyone that may be listening about such a wonderful subject.
0: It is indeed. Uh, We're gonna get a little personal today. you know, with you and Tolkien and history and, and, and also about your workshop, the fine work you've done. It's been 30 years now. Is that right?
1: Uh, 34 years since my wife Tanya and I started in the back room of our flat, what's known as an apartment in in America. Um, my office that I'm sitting in with my assistant, Ree, uh, where I do all of our creative brainstorming is probably six times bigger than that original workshop, and this isn't a particularly big um, office. But uh, <laughs> our first workshop actually had our double bed in the middle of it, so um, it was very funny meeting Peter Jackson because uh, he he lamented years later when he was asked about meeting us that when he first came to our first workshop. It had the same stinking smell of polyester resin and uh, rubber latex, which is what we were casting at the time. Um, Thank God. It's good that things have moved on since those days, I must say.
0: Yeah, but there's got to be a lot. I mean, that's really some neat nostalgia and some neat memories to know that you started right there. And I mean, that's pretty great.
1: Yeah, I, I actually, Larry, I'm being a bit harsh on it. Because I actually lament those days, as I think we all do, I think you tend to remember things with much more uh richness and and wonder than was actually in the moment in the moment it was toil and smelly and but you're in that heady youth of of and hugely invigorated by the inspiration of what you're doing and uh I still feel that today, but of course, what comes along with it today is all the complexities of big business and large number of people working with you, et cetera but uh my wife and I certainly reflect on those early days with huge fondness and uh and you know you you didn't know what you didn't know you were forging forward in um, blissful ignorance uh, can often be a great ally, and uh, and because we hadn't yet met anyone uh, that did the same thing we did that we were trying to do, we hadn't yet met people from overseas, and uh, we hadn't met other people in New Zealand that uh, were interested in what we we're doing. We were making it up as we we're going along, and what is now a very well worn. Um, story about our early life is I actually started sculpting everything in margarine because I just didn't even understand the concept that you could buy commercial scale plasticine right Mm. and it wasn't available in New Zealand in fact years later um, after I finally grew up and stopped using margarine I actually uh Uh, The first, uh, for many years, we used to make all of our own plasticine just from raw products that we bought from different companies around New Zealand. But uh, the first 300 commercial sculptures that I did in the television industry were sculpted in margarine.
0: That's amazing, actually. (laughs) Like, I feel like I, you know, you've been kind to me over the years and we've shared an interview or two, but I don't think I've heard that before. Like, that's really remarkable. Uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was it was um I my wife uh, got a job working at a a night shift at a hotel uh, as a duty manager and um through her I got introduced to the chef. Uh this wonderful guy called Alex and he he invited me in and uh to do buffet sculptures for him in swaps for meals. We were we were on the bones of our ass at the time so he um, kindly gave us uh, uh, my wife and I uh, access to a three course meal if I did a buffet sculpture once a week so that 's what i did and instead of doing swans and ponies and you know which is what he had been doing, I started doing monsters and creatures and birdmen and dragons and dinosaurs and and so I just fell in love with the medium of sculpting and margarine and uh, it was so fast and For those people listening that may be into sculpting, the best way I can describe it to you, if, um, if sculpting in plasticine is like working with an HB pencil, sketching with an HB pencil, sculpting in wet clay is like working in a 2B pencil, um sculpting a margarine is like working with an 8b pencil it's <laughs> it's so malleable so soft so dynamic as a material uh, yeah and then my tanya used to mold it all and uh so yeah anyway
0: that's amazing enough about that well, yeah. he, so uh here in the states i don't i mean i don't know what our odd culture here gets exported to the world, but we have what we call them state fairs. Uh, you know, so I'm in Utah. So Utah would have a state fair. And inevitably, there's a sculpture in something like that as a, you know, stuck in a freezer, say, of a dairy cow or something. But I think we could upgrade. I, the I, follow,
1: I follow those, Larry. I, I actually watch your state fair margarine sculptures on the Internet because there is some extraordinarily high craft just like pumpkin carving, right? Most people cut holes through a pumpkin and then suddenly someone in America uh, comes up with world-class portrait sculpting in pumpkins and, and I get hooked on it. And then I've got to watch every pumpkin sculpting video there is. And so, yeah, I'm aware of your state fairs and uh, the margarine sculpting competitions.
0: Well, I will look at them in a new way now. That's... uh. That's a whole new respect <laughs> yeah. level. Uh, yeah. I did. You know, we're going to be all over the place, Richard. And I, I, there's a couple of things I wanted to go back. You know, to your first kind of talking experiences. But you you mentioned something actually that I just want to stop on here. Um, obviously, a great deal of your career has been in working with Peter Jackson, and you had just mentioned like the, your first meeting with him. Um, if if I'm properly educated, which you know you can fill me in you had done some work on some puppets and then met with peter to talk about meet the feebles do you remember like you know the first time you were acquainted and was was it in a professional capacity like hey let's have a meeting and talk about kind of doing this i'm i'm that's a fascinating chapter in the saga i think
1: yeah and i um I apologise to you and to the viewers because obviously this is a very long time ago and I've been interviewed on this question a couple of times and my memory today is vague and I might get a little wrong, so sorry if you cross-check it, anyone, and I haven't got it quite right for you, but I'll give you the vague beats of it. Um, So my wife and I uh, had been working in the New Zealand uh, film industry, but actually... Sorry, I'll start again. We've been working in the New Zealand television industry as model makers. We were working for a company called Gibson Group. We got a contract to make a New Zealand version of Spitting Image. Uh, in fact, we were doing TV com- low-budget TV commercials for them. I was art directing, model making. Tanya was coming in in her uh, off days helping me, and uh, we we got wind of the fact they wanted to make a New Zealand version of splitting image. Um, So I snuck in one night and I grabbed some photographs of the boss of the company, went home, and in margarine sculpted a puppet. Tanya and I moulded it, cast it, turned it into rubber, painted it, clothed it, haired it, and I put it on his desk in a rubbish sack um, late at night with my card. The next morning he came in, pulled the rubbish bag off, there was this puppet of him in a spitting image style. He phoned me up and said, great, you've got the job, but you needn't have bothered with the puppet. No one else has applied. So, <laughs> but I guess that is testament to me, right? I didn't just go and ask him if I could do the bloody job. I had to go to all the effort of making a copy of him. So we won this contract. We worked on it for two years. We made 68 puppets for, for this show called Public Eye. And a friend of ours, um, Cameron Chiddick, Uh, came and uh, was part of that early production. And he had just finished working with this filmmaker that he had met called Peter Jackson, who was working an hour out of Wellington from his mum and dad's basement, um, making a movie called Bad Taste. And uh, we didn't didn't get to work on Bad Taste, but he suggested that uh, we may enjoy meeting Peter and Peter would be keen to meet us because... Here, Peter had seen our work, I believe, on television and um, was keen to just meet other people interested in puppet making. And remember at the time, Peter was doing almost everything himself, including the puppets. So um, we were now, in between seasons of Public Eye, we were working on a massive uh, television commercial as art department people, Cameron, me and Tanya, uh, a, a... TV commercials for Folgers coffee beans. I don't we don't even have that brand in New Zealand, but it's an American brand, I believe. Sure is. And this was the probably one of the biggest budget TV commercials ever to be done and it was around the time of the Indiana Jones movie, so the creatives from the US had come up with this Indiana Jones style adventurer discovering the coffee beans of this part of the world. And we were building these massive full-size trees out of tinfoil. And anyway, walked through the door of the sound stage where we're working was this young guy. Um, and uh, I climbed off the set and walked up to him and introduced myself. He introduced himself to me, and that was Peter Jackson. And that's how we met. He just walked in one day to say hello. And um, he Tanya, me and him became very quick and firm friends and we found ourselves hanging out with him a great deal, uh, multiple evenings a week in some cases. Tanya would cook for him, he'd cook for us. He moved into town and bought a little bungalow on the the coast of Wellington. And he had an extraordinary, um, already an extraordinary depth of understanding of the world's Film industry and specifically the practical effects industry, and so it was through Peter that we discovered magazines like Fangoria, Cinema, Cinafantastique, Cinefex, because we weren't aware of any of these. And he also had a very large uh, video collection. And at that time, our our knowledge of the um, of the world's uh, effects history was very limited because we'd both grown up in rural New Zealand no not no great access to cinema so um, over those early years um, we got this intense uh, education around uh, the the effects physical effects industry through Peter and that was really the inception point of our friendship and the very great fortune to get to work with someone so stellar and so inspirational.
0: Um, And do forgive me, you do get interviewed an awful lot, and it is awfully hard to, you know, approach you with questions you've not had before. So thank you for your patience and your excellent answers. Really appreciate it.
1: (laughs) That's all right. I've only lived one life, remember, so it's hard to um, to come up with things that people may not have heard.
0: Well, I'm sure we'll reach new audience here. I think uh, that's hoped at least.
2: Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.
0: So I still haven't asked you the initial question I was going to start with, and and I'm not going to now either. There's something else you said that... um, you know, a lot of people want to create in the world. There's lots of p- whatever, at whatever level and scale, people have a passion to create lots of things. Um, and one thing I hear you talk about just now, uh, not specifically, but just kind of, you know, it's kind of lurking in the shadows of what you say. Uh, and and from knowing you just a little, I think it's true. But you seem to just do things like you don't uh, like building your puppet or tackling the Lord of the Rings films or whatever it is. Your approach kind of seems to be like, well, let's just do this. Is am I right about that? And if I am, how have you? How has that kind of guided your path?
1: Uh, yes that that is very much my life philosophy, and that can get you into hot water, uh, especially in the world in the modern world of compliance law and the need to (laughs) pander to governmental. You know um, restrictions, etc. Uh, it's not my quote, but a dear friend of mine, a gentleman called Ian Taylor. No, no relationship to me. A famous New Zealand entrepreneur, uh, early digital um, pioneer in New Zealand, uh, prolific uh, creator in the world's. Um, live performance tracking of sports events he does nascar he does the world uh sailing cup etc um he once said to me a wonderful quote which i hope translates for american um ears is uh just pour the concrete and bugger the boxing right <laughs> what that means is just pour the concrete and bugger the boxing uh is um when you build a house or the foundations of any building, you go through extraordinary lengths to uh, to box it up with, with with timber to get perfectly square, perfectly correct foundations. And without really strong foundations of accuracy, the building will end up wonky, right? But um, there is a alternative technique where you literally just dig a trench into the dirt as accurate as your shovel will allow and then you just pour concrete into it right and to some degree in the pursuit of the former we lose the freedom of the latter and it is a very very fine balance and one that I am at odds with every day because of course running a company of 300 and 20 people and trying to meet all compliance requirements and complementing all personal uh, personality needs and etc. etc. Everything that everyone can understand and imagine. You have to tick a very large number of boxes, but the box ticking mustn't dissipate the entrepreneurial and innovative qualities of just pouring the concrete and be buggered with the boxing, right? So so it, it's a fine balance. And the way I've described it since the beginning of my career is the necessity to keep our company as a soft ball of clay, never a hard block of wood. If it becomes a hard block of wood, things can knock it off its trajectory very easily. But if it's a soft ball of clay, it remains ever malleable, ever adjustable, you can absorb and extract and change and shift. And if I, if I'm being a little bit harsh on myself, I would argue that I probably don't even have the mental um, skills or aptitude to be more structured about it. Hmm. Like um, just, just, just give it a go. Right. Uh, I'm very much about just giving it a go. And, and trying to lead by example by by building it three dimensionally. Get off the paper quickly. Get out of the drafting quickly, and start conceptualizing three dimensionally, um, and and seeing if it works. Seeing if you emote to it. And you know we we've just. Um, We've just built an experience a year and a half ago in Auckland, which is called Where Workshop Unleashed, a fantastical film effects experience. It's a walkthrough, uh, um, highly creative, highly educational experience for people that come and visit us. And I work with an inspirational, brilliant uh, production designer called Ben Barad. And uh, we've done Gallipoli, Bug Lab, the TCM museum in China, and now unleashed together, and his process is very much and very appropriately the process of drafting, getting approvals, getting fire clearance, getting all the HVAC figured out, etc. And that is critical. My process is far more organic and far more just get it off the paper and into a construction, and let's see if we feel that our 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 minds our bodies, our emotions interface with the the shapes the surfaces, the journey in a appealing human human to to environment way right and neither is wrong neither is right um, uh, no, sorry what I mean by that if you only did it Ben's way you'd get it perfectly compliant but maybe it would miss something. And if you only do it my way, we wouldn't meet compliance, (laughs) but you'd have this crazy mishmash of organic um, stuff. Uh, So it's finding that complementary relationship between the two that becomes so imperative uh, in modern business. But if I can give any advice to anyone that's listening that's at the inception of their careers, is just give it a go right if you, we get a lot of people come and see us that say we want to be I want to be a filmmaker. Now 30 years ago if someone came and said that to me, to be a filmmaker was incredibly challenging because you had to be able to afford uh, the camera, the editing equipment or access to the editing equipment, the sound equipment you had to, Obviously, be able to buy the stock. You could only shoot on film. Today, feature films are being shot on iPhones, edited on free downloadable software with digital effects being done in people's bedrooms. And my only advice I can give to a wannabe filmmaker is just start shooting. Just start making stuff. Um, because uh, if you ponder on the fact you don't have what you think you need, you're invariably not going to actually um, discover that all the things that you do have are going to produce results that you may be entirely happy with.
0: That's really amazing advice. Um, as you keep talking, I keep. I have two questions, Richard, and then we'll get to the very first question I wanted to ask you, I promise. <laughs> um, one: Do you write at all? Is there any part of you that writes like a script or creative writing? Is that a thing that's in, that you do?
1: Um, no, not really. Um, I I know that I'm not a director. Saying that, I do direct a great deal through the year because we're shooting stuff in the workshop, and and I have been offered directing gigs. Um, hmm. Maybe, maybe if I put my mind to it, maybe I would be okay at it. And it has been questioned of me why I've turned those directing gigs down and the reason I've turned them down is not fear of failure from directing but that is entirely a potential because I don't know whether I could actually string together a film Um, and you don't really know till you give it a go of course and this is somewhat contradictory to my previous comments to you, the reason I haven't taken it on is the only way to direct something of worth is to entirely dedicate your life to that task for a period of time. I don't think directing can really be a part-time role if it is a, if it requiring a commercial outcome. Um, uh where there are a crew involved. Now look at Peter Jackson. He shot um, Bad Taste over seven years, made over seven years. So that's entirely contradictory to my statement. But he was working to his own budget, to his own schedule. Um, that's that's fine if that's if you're the master of your own destiny. But if you have a studio expectation on you, then you probably Um, need to dedicate and focus your life to it and I simply don't want to do that because I any minute spent doing something else is a minute not spent doing what I'm doing right now which is what I love doing which is running a physical effects model making company um and so um yeah so so that's something that uh I've now lost the track of what your question was but uh Oh, you were asking about writing. Yes. I do write a little bit. I recently wrote a um, a Love, Death and Robots style script for a potential thing in China, um, and I've written a few bits and pieces, but by no means am I an inspired writer. Um, mm. I'd like to think I have inspired ideas, but um, putting it through... Um, in a literary way that could inspire others is probably a little bit outside of my capabilities. Um, In some cases, when I am writing things about the company or writing uh, stuff uh, about, you know, um, projects we're doing or whatever, I'll actually run it through uh, the Daniel Falconer filter. Larry obviously knows (laughs) Daniel very well. Daniel's um, a very dear friend of mine, but some view, some listeners will know of Daniel, but he's arguably extremely well-known in the Tolkien circles for his extraordinary passion for that subject. And uh, he will help me just unjumble my written thoughts a little bit and help me get a little bit more clarity. So if you're reading things that appear of of brilliance that have come off my pen – they probably have gone through Daniel's filters,
0: <laughs> so yeah. Part of the reason I ask, I, I, you don't even need to respond to this. I'm just going to pay you the compliment, and we can move right on. But I, I do find you a very inspired speaker, and I think you're extremely articulate, and um, you just have really a knack, I think. And very often, people who can do that are also good writers. It's a there's some thought process that's the same, so. I, I believe you. you that you don't think you're capable of inspired writing but I I think you are but you <laughs> you probably you. would have to give up a workshop and and lots of things to you know um my second question richard again we're still not to the beginning but um this creative process conversation is really good and it and it does tie in with Tolkien and Middle Earth and one of Tolkien's big themes was subcreation that's one of the things he really wrote about a lot and believed in in his work as a creator, as a creative type, whether it be sculpting or whatever it is, I, maybe this isn't an issue for you. But I know quite a few creatives who who struggle when maybe their tastes or their goals are higher than their abilities, and and they and it's hard to maybe not quit or hard they're not satisfied with what they produce. Have you ever kind of faced that, like you know, a sculpture or whatever comes out and it isn't what you wanted, and and more importantly, how do you? combat those voices that, you know I mean, clearly you have combated them successfully or never had them, but how do you kind of fight those self-doubts off?
1: Yeah, I think I I have had them, I do have them, and I will always have them because I think any artist worth their uh Bacon uh constantly self-reflecting on their on their capabilities and their journeys. Um, I my hobby, which I do in the weekends, um, uh, predominantly on Sunday, is uh, is sculpting. But I sculpt at monumental scale, uh, mainly in concrete. Hmm. Uh, and uh, this is, you know, this is something no one really knows about. But that's what what I what I do, and um, uh, I've produced a fairly large number of monumental sculptures, uh, which sit in a landscape. Um, and, uh, you know, I constantly reflect of after I've completed the piece. In fact, I'm doing a piece right now, and on Sunday I'll be sculpting it again, and it's uh, it's a very large, very significant sculpture, and I'm, I'm down to the final 10% of the piece, and I'm trying to capture the sense of um, falling cloth lying across the top of a human figure, hmm. which at the scale of a tabletop is relatively simple, but when you're doing it in concrete at monumental scale, it becomes incredibly challenging, or at least for me, maybe some artists, well, definitely some artists would find it incredibly simple. And there is a large number of artists in the world, vastly more talented than me that could do it with confidence and verve. But, um, I'm finding this particular thing challenging. So I, I'll reflect on it. I'll think about it all week, uh, trying to think about how I'm going to tackle it again and uh, refresh my approach to it. And And with our commercial work, I've always said that it would be entirely disingenuous to the people that work around me to not feel an immense sense of pride when we get to the premiere and see our work because... One thing you can't do is stand in the front of every cinema in the world and hold up a sign that says, please forgive the next five minutes. We only had five bucks and uh, five days to make it, right? The problem is that the public that are watching the work that you've done have no idea in which the the, the, the paradigm of of pressures and money tensions and time and changes and so on are playing out on that creative process. So you have to take pride in whatever the result, it was the best you could have achieved in the time you had. And if that is your primary principle, and remember, commercial art creation is always gonna be a process of compromise. It took me a very long time to understand that. And that may seem contradictory to what I've been saying and what I philosophise on, but a fine artist can work in a, in a scope of zero um, compromise because they can set an almost open-ended and infinite endeavour to achieve as close to perfection. But we actually say to our team here at work, please do not pursue perfection we want you to pursue excellence at every step, but perfection is almost an unachievable goal. So if we pursue perfection, there is no room for compromise that is dictated by budgetary and time controls. And so, therefore, uh, you have to um, uh, manage your appropriate levels of uh, of. Uh, adjustment to compromise to get the best you possibly can. And, you know, people have said, oh, are you trying to be the best in the world? I said, "We, we, we arguably will never be the best in the world, but of course we want to be the best we can be in the world. And that's two very different things. And I think if anyone wants to pursue a higher level of creative outcome, trying to pursue the best in the world, is for a very limited few, and it's not for me. I, I don't aspire to be the best in the world at anything that we do, but I sure as hell aspire to be the best we can be in the world at, at what we're doing. And they're they're entirely different because it drives your your focus around the aspirations controlled by the 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 compromises required in the industry you're working in.
0: Well. Uh... None of this was what I had planned to talk about, but I really appreciate those insights into the creative process and I and I think other people will as well. I um it's selfishly uh that whole creative stuff is things I'm working on personally, so maybe that's why I'm so interested, but um I boy that was just inspiring and yes. and revelatory as well.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I think the last thing then if, you know, Um, We all have ceilings, and some people have an extraordinary ability to smash through their ceiling. Uh, Olympians are are, are obviously the heightened level of that example. But irrelevant to whether your ceiling is very low and very uh, easily smashed or very high and very impenetrable, I'm very much of the view that every single day of your life, you have to be um, focused on trying to break through your own ceilings. I, I have them, right? I I run our company and I'm the senior creative here, but I still go home almost every night. And before I start doing my emails, I sit and read a chapter or two about historical artists, about people specifically in the area of interest that I have, which uh, is um, is an area, British New School, the new romanticists that were coming through in the Victorian era of sculpting. I have a huge passion for it. I'm an amateur enthusiast. Um, and when I travel uh, overseas, I specifically go to art galleries that have these type of collections and I learn from them, I view them. But the point I'm making is that I have a ceiling with respect to my sculpting abilities and I have a ceiling with respect to my ability to critique and brief sculpture in the people around me. But I want our sculpture, as as hopefully people can acknowledge with the collectibles that we make, to be at the very best that we can make them. And for that to be the case, it's beholden on me to be as knowledgeable as I possibly can be in things such as historical sculpture, in the process of sculpture, in the way to see sculpture. And you can only do that if you can't access learned professors who are going to teach you. You can only do it through reading. So I'm constantly trying to break through these ceilings of ignorance that may be in me to better equip me to do my job more fully for the people I work with.
0: Tremendous, I'll, I'll uh, again, just really appreciate that. Um, let me ask you, Richard, this is a, uh, all of that applies again to sub creation and Tolkien, but but let's talk about, uh, again, now it's you and, and maybe not totally comfortable and you've done a million interviews, but do you have an early memory? Uh, I believe that you appreciated Tolkien uh, a book as a child. Am I right about that? Do I recall that? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I tell you, the best way, I I had a very immature reading age and very poor reading. My mum was a teacher, a primary school and uh, intermediate school teacher. So thankfully, she was sympathetic to what was a awkward... Um, an incapability within me to grasp uh, written words. And I also was a mirror writer for the first probably 10 years of my life. Um, The term dyslexic didn't exist at the time, and so I can't say that I was a dyslexic child, but words scrambled and so on. And she very cleverly um, thought to... Access the written word through comic books for me, mm. and the comic book that I had access to was called Rupert the Bear. You may not know it, Larry, I do and not. Um, your your readers may not know it, but there's two wonderful things about Rupert the Bear, which I'll just mention because some people, especially um, educators that are on the call or uh, people with dyslexic. Uh, or Asperger's children may find interesting is Rupert the Bear was a very early British comic and it had a very clever process of putting, which I've not seen in future comics, it would have the comic strip made up of the illustrations of Rupert's adventures with his friends, uh, which had speech bubbles with minimum amount of writing And then underneath it, it would have a written, um, almost novel-like literature of a more full story of what Rupert's doing in the pictures. So as a very immature reader, I was able to firstly just look at the pictures. Then as I started to get a grasp of the story, I could then read the, the speech bubbles and then, as I grew more competent, I could start to read the text below, okay. And um, and and I said there was two specific things about Rupert the Bear that was critical to me. And I've actually never talked about this subject. So here you go, Larry. I am actually right. I have mentioned Rupert the Bear maybe once or twice before, but I'm actually telling you something that I've not spoken about before. Um, The other thing that is unique about Rupert the Bear, which some hardcore fantasy um, enthusiasts like myself may enjoy, uh, is that the, the writer of Rupert the Bear had written a world where Rupert and his friends could slip through portals into fantastical worlds, right? And this started scratching in the back of my mind this cuz co- when you're growing up in a you know a, a, we're growing up in a share milkers cottage on a farm that milks cows and we're renting this little cottage in the middle of a paddock and you wake up each morning and you walk to school in your bare feet and you in winter you put your feet in in hot cow pats to warm them and you know it's a very pragmatic Life probably very similar, Larry, to something that you may have grown up in, and many of the. But but so there's no ability to understand until literature opens that awareness for you. That running and remember we didn't have the TV shows that you uh, were so fortunate to have grown up on. That that running in parallel with your own world and your own life just slightly through this membrane that should you choose to scratch at it and tear it apart slightly, there is a whole nother world, a fictitious and fantastical and mythological world that is a mythopia just waiting to be discovered. But you don't know how to actually cut the membrane because you haven't yet been told that that world exists in parallel to your own. So Rupert the Bear began that. Then, by very great fortune, and and as I've mentioned in the past, my mother was training at the Ardmore Teachers Training College to become a teacher, and um, and she, they had a closing down sale of their library, and as a young kid, I went along to it, and Mum had given me two dollars um, to spend, and with that two dollars, I bought two things. One of them was a black and white photographic book of a collection of sculptures from an unknown world in an unknown language from an unknown sculptor. But these sculptures fascinated me. Mm. That's a whole nother story, Larry, that would blow your mind because that book led on to me by happenstance meeting that sculptor wow. 36 years later in, a, in the streets of Chengdu, in Sichuan, the place that you've just heard the earthquake has been in China. Wow. And I actually have had pictures hanging in the workshop of that sculptor's work since the inception of our workshop, never thinking that one day I will meet him and he will become a mentor and he'll come to New Zealand and stay with me and actually sculpt with me. But that's a whole other crazy story. But the other thing I bought was a dog-eared print of the triptych of the Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch. Hmm. And I hung that print above my bed in this in this this little cottage that we were living in. And those of you that know that print and those of you that don't, I strongly recommend you look it up. Um, and especially considering the era in which it was painted is a mind-boggling look into earth, heaven, and hell as told through Hieronymus Bosch's lens. And, of course, in viewing that print, my mind just entirely was enabled to understand that you were capable of ripping open that membrane and stepping through it and living in parallel which is your imagination, of course. Thankfully, at about the same age, um, Tolkien came into my life because my mum bought me a copy of The Hobbit. Mm. I was not yet capable of reading Lord of the Rings. I just didn't have the reading age. And I would argue that even on reading The Hobbit, I actually skimmed chunks of it because I just couldn't wrap my head around the words that he had used from other languages and you know and and yes. couldn't process them. But I processed the story enough to know, even at that young age, which is the case with you, I know from my past discussions with you and so many people listening, that this this world was now cemented, not not even requiring you to step through the membrane into that other world. This is actually cemented under the feet of your life as Mm. a part of your very ongoing journey. And can you imagine, therefore, 20-plus years later, Peter Jackson gives me a phone call, that famous phone call, and says, you better grab the guys, pick up the fish and chips and the coke, come around because I've got something to tell you. Wow. And, of course, yeah, like I've got chills running up and down my spine right now because what he was going to tell us is, hey, guys, we're going to start working on The Lord of the Rings. Bonkers, eh? It's
0: quite a phone call. uh, Yeah, yeah. About that phone call. So um, very famously, Pete was working with Miramax. I think that's what it was at the time. And then was shopping it around Hollywood. And and part of that shopping around was a reel, if I'm not mistaken, that showed different things, different possibilities. Am I am I correct in that?
1: Yeah, Larry, it is very, very vague in my mind. Sure. Um, so Miramax, we'd been working on the frighteners. Um Peter, I think, had a first, and I apologise to Peter if I've got this wrong, but I think Pete had a first-look deal with Miramax. Um, He was catching up with them, and, um, you know, they they were probably getting a little impatient because he had just made um, the Frighteners with with another studio. And they probably, you know, if I recall correctly, uh, they asked him, well, God damn, what do you want to make then? Just tell us. And he said, I think he said, I I want to make uh, um, uh, the world, you know, a a film from the world of Middle Earth. And initially, for that first year that we were working for Miramax, uh, we were focused on making two films, I think, if I've got this right. The budget was a third of what it would ultimately become to make the three films, if I've got that right. I apologise to the listeners who may know far better than me now, because I, I don't revise this information. My, it's all relying on my very fuzzy memory. And we started in earnest uh, to make um, those films, and uh, you know the 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 the. the Hours following that first meeting where Peter told us that we were going to be doing uh, these films, um, Jamie Bestwarak specifically, but the five people that came with me, all immediately and almost explosively started designing. And uh, as is now famous, sculptures that Jamie did in that one week before catching up with Peter again, because Peter said, we'll come back and we'll have a further chat in a week when I know more. Um, not really expecting that we necessarily would go away and do such a massive body of work, but you can't help yourself, can you? So we we all ran away quickly, and Jamie did work that ultimately, in that first week, ended up in the movie, mm. unchanged, mm. mind-boggling, because mm. uh, he just got it so fundamentally from Peter's description of how he visualised the world, and that's, that's one of the great... Aspects of Peter is his ability to communicate uh, vision of process and and creativity with absolute clarity to you um, in cases like that. So uh, and and for that first year, we even got right down to building miniatures. We had completely finished um, Helm's Deep. We'd done literally hundreds of marquettes. I I can't imagine how many drawings uh, we'd already made weaponry, we'd done prosthetic tests, we had the Iroquois almost figured out, we were starting to do the orcs. And then of course, Miramax chose to move on and pass on the project. And they Peter convinced them to put it into turnaround and he had X number of days, I think it was a month, to go out and shop it around. So we quickly put together a portfolio um, Alan and John were involved at that point and so with their work with our work uh, we put together a huge it was an A1 portfolio and this custom-made leather binder and I pity Peter because he had to carry this around the studios but he but he took it willingly and um, videos were cut together of of various scaling tests and things like that and I think, if I recall. And we put these beautiful marquettes that we'd made completely in super sculpy. They hadn't even been cast because we didn't have the budget or time to cast them. Mm -hmm. And we put them in a great big aluminium case that we made. Sadly, in the case of those, Peter gave me a phone call um, (laughs) when he arrived in his hotel in the US and he said, I've just taken the top off the box And sadly, they're all smashed. Um, And what had happened is the luggage handlers had dropped the box probably off the top of the conveyor belt coming out of the aeroplane. That's all we can think, because when he brought it back to New Zealand, the box was very badly. It it was a bulletproof box, but it had been very badly dented and it had shattered the sculptures inside. So as far as I can recall, he wasn't able to use those. Uh, but he had the portfolio and of course he had the video footage and and as history now tells um in the in the eleventh hour uh bob shea and michael Lim met with him and do you want to just pass me that sign Ree? was able to um greenlight uh the movie now re my assistant re who is um sitting opposite me has a series of signs that count down from twenty minutes to this sign. I'll just show it to Larry, so <laughs> you guys can't see this. But this, this, this has a um, Doctor Evil going zip it. Um, so, because I'm being told that I've run out of time and I need to shut up.
0: Well, let me permit me a final question, then, if you will. Yes, of course. If, if Re will, I mean that's we we know yeah, who's Ree, running Ree, things.
1: Ree, will you permit Larry a final? Ree and Larry know each other very well. Everyone listening, because we catch up at Comic Con and places like that. So yeah. he's trading. He'll have to buy you a beer next time <laughs> we're we're in we're 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 at the. Uh, um, yeah, we'll have to pull the pin too, literally. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, I haven't Please. been to a show in a long time. I don't know when I'll go next either. So I don't know. Uh, but I'll buy yeah. Ree a beer. Some. In fact, what I really need to do is go to Auckland and see that new uh, the wedding. Please. I. I I if just, you
1: do, I'll fly up and take you through. Yeah,
0: I mean, you are, don't say that because I will. Uh, I just sent oh, a fr- no, I,
1: well, I, well, I, I'm entirely, um, I'm entirely sincere about that. If you were able to make it to Auckland, uh, hopefully on the way down to come and see us, uh, I would fly to Auckland to give you a private and conducted tour of the place because then I can tell you all the back history of all the little bits about how we created it.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's going to happen. I'll be in contact with three. My my question is this. I love that you recounted that story a little bit from your perspective and your sculptures. And what I'm really interested in, Richard, is the emotions of, wow, we get to create things in Middle Earth. Like, you, we get to create weapons and all the things, monsters and all the things you mentioned. Like, I, I, more than like, you know, the events, I want to know how that felt. And then – um I guess also when the, the news that the turnaround worked and somebody signed off, like, I, I just can't imagine those weren't big emotional experiences.
1: Yeah. And I'll have to answer this in a very abbreviated way or else, um, Ree will bring out her shepherd's crook and physically <laughs> rip me out of my chair. Um, uh, Larry, as you probably have ascertained in your interactions with myself and our colleagues, at Weta Workshop, New Zealanders are very understated and we're not ones to sort of bounce off the walls of emotion when big things happen. And um, I can barely contain myself, but that's at a New Zealand level, which at an American level would be considered extremely uh, demure and... uh, and, um, and sort of relatively quiet, you know. We're not a we're not a country of high fivers and um, a, a ch- chess chess pumpers. We we you just go about your shit basically and try and get through your day. And and that's not for a moment to su- suggest that we're not as elated as anyone would be. And the sense of emotion on hearing, firstly, that we're beginning on the journey is is. Understandably entirely overwhelming, because you respect and appreciate the the volume I, I say volume rather than scale there 's a scale to the task, but scale suggests something that goes vertically when you're, when your tasks were doing we looked after five departments on the three largest films ever made in history that i 'm aware of maybe there are bigger but the the largest trilogy let 's say all been shot at the same time. It's actually a volume of undertaking because it's three-dimensional. It's a matrix of complexity and um, processes. Uh, Just our line items of of product that we had to manufacture was in the tens of thousands. And here's Tanya and I trying to figure out what what these things are going to be and how we're going to do them and so on. And... um, and then the thought that you've got to take a group of people along with you. And it's now as well documented, only one-eighth of our eventual staff had ever worked on a film or TV show before. So it's not like making a movie in the US uh, of similar scale where you just literally turn to a very large um, talent pool and hire the best you can get. You're, You're literally, we had a person whose previous job was a grave digger Another person was a um, pine tree planter, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we were drawing from the New Zealand community, not from the New Zealand creative community alone. But, of course, um, Kiwis, being who they are, uh, yeah, she'll be right. I'll give it a go. No worries, mate. And um, not to be too coarse in the clichés, but there is a mentality of just give it a go, and um, that's indeed what everyone did and of course brought exceptional talent and skills and strengths to the task and then the emotion of um the emotion that it might all fall over was almost too much to bear uh of course and uh Tanya and I resolutely never lost the faith um hmm. i think it's fair to say we we never wavered in our belief uh through those months where it got very dark um that we wouldn't be making this movie and in mm. fact we kept the team together we kept making stuff through a period of time that we weren't being financed uh just to try and we figured if we could project enough faith uh, in our belief that it's going to happen maybe it just simply will happen so um you know that that's that's um that's where i um I sort of went, but then, of course, when it got going again, um, the 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 joy of it happening is 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 undeniable. And I've said often, it wasn't it wasn't easy. You can imagine it was pretty tough. Um, but never at any time was it so tough that I ever considered um, that I didn't want to be doing it. I never considered that geez I wish I could go home early or I wish I didn't have to go in for the weekend or I I never ever thought that because um it you know you're so ecstatic in the experience of what you've been blessed to do uh that you just throw everything To you Larry that was a great interview it's always lovely catching up with you and thank you to your listeners that have um listen to me waffle over the last 58 minutes. And uh, it's always a joy to have a conversation with other passionate uh, Tolkien enthusiasts. I wish that we uh, could be in a conversation rather than me just talking only to Larry and we're all chatting together. But maybe that's for another day and uh, especially if we can catch up at a con sometime. So please come up and say hello if you're passing our stand. If we do get back to Comic-Con one
0: day. So cheers to you, Larry. Deepest appreciation. Thank you so much. Well, that's it. That's the conversation with Sir Richard Taylor. I deeply appreciate his generous donation of time and talent and brain power. And if you've listened this far, I deeply appreciate your time and attention as well. I really do appreciate it. If you think this was worthwhile, all I would hope for is that you would recommend it to someone else, that you would tell them it is worth their time as well. I feel strongly that word of mouth is the best kind of promotion. It wouldn't hurt if you told the bosses that ksl podcast that it was worth your time as well here at last dear friends our podcasting in middle earth is done for another episode again thank you for listening and please go in peace remember you have so much to enjoy and to be and to do until next time i am larry d curtis and this is middle earth musings